Hi, and welcome to this episode of Clayton's HSC Business. Today, we're going to be looking at human resource strategies. So this is the biggest part of the human resources topic. And what I'll be doing, I'll be going through the key syllabus dot points. And every time you hear a syllabus dot point, you will also hear this sound. Please feel free to get in touch if you have any questions regarding anything on the podcast. I really hope you find this useful and that it will assist you with your studying for the HSC exam. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy it. Introduction. So management are increasingly recognising the value of an effective employment relations structure. Businesses are looking for strategies to better manage employees across all aspects of the human resource cycle. So the process of managing is broad and relates to many areas of the relationship between the business and its staff. And this involves the manner in which employees are encouraged to participate in the decision-making process. So dispute resolution is particularly important for this. The skill development of staff must also be considered, while management must examine strategies that effectively reward staff. Leadership style. So leaders make decisions, develop strategies for the development of the business and interact with employees. Increasingly, businesses are recognising the value of employees to their organisation. So the employee and not the product is regarded as a competitive advantage. And leadership style is the manner and approach in which leaders of a business interact with the staff. And this is based on providing staff with directions and instructions, implementing plans, organising and motivating staff in a manner that promotes effective workplace performance. The three types of leadership style are authoritarian, participative and delegative. So authoritarian is also known as autocratic leadership, which we've often covered as Gordon Ramsay. Under this style, generally a leader is responsible for telling the employees what they want done and how to accomplish the task. There's no role for employees to contribute to any process of decision making. Secondly, participative. This style of leadership is also democratic leadership. The concept of inclusion is a really important aspect of this style. So participative or democratic leadership involves the leader, including one or more employees in the decision making process. Employees are consulted about what to do and how to do it. And given the involvement of staff in the decision-making process, the final decision-making still rests with the boss or the leader. The third one is delegative leadership. This is also known as free reign. The leader allows the employees to make the decisions. Despite this, not all decisions then become the responsibility of employees. The process of effective delegated leadership involves a clear understanding between leaders and employees over who can make the decisions. Job design. Job design is the function of HR management where managers develop and specify the work activities of individuals or groups in the business. It involves the process of determining the type of tasks an employee will complete within the workforce. The objectives of effective job design are to meet the needs of the business and the employee, so the relevance as a key strategy in HR management is really important. When designing the nature of the task, management must consider the needs of the business. So job satisfaction and enrichment are two key concepts that come from this. Job satisfaction refers to the extent to which employees are satisfied working in their current position within the business, while job enrichment actually makes use of employees' talents and abilities in the workplace. HR managers need to develop a job design that satisfies the employee's personal and workplace requirements. Job enrichment allows a business to develop tasks with the abilities of existing staff in mind. The task may also challenge the employees through problem-solving situations, which enhances their skills. And job enrichment reduces the boredom associated with many types of work. So there's lots of different types of job design, and some of the questions that might come up are who does the job, what needs to be done, 
where must the task be completed, when to complete the task and how to complete the task. Recruitment. This is the strategy where management seek to employ an individual for a vacancy that exists within the business. Once the decision to recruit is made, an analysis of the job needs to be done. This is so the selectors know what skill characteristics applicants must possess and what qualities and attitudes are desirable and also what characteristics may be a disadvantage to the business. Training and development. Formal training involves employees taking on a role similar to that of students within the organisation. They are shown how to apply themselves to the new operations of the business and are later assessed on their level of understanding. And examples include lectures, seminars, trainee and apprentice schemes and external courses. Informal training occurs when the employee is either shown or modelled the correct skills. It could simply be done by using a coach or mentor or by their learning the work on the job. Training and development also provide employees with an opportunity to acquire the skills and experience they need if they are to be promoted within the organisation. Induction. This is the process of providing new employees with the knowledge and skills they need to understand the day-to-day -day operations of the business. So essentially it's a training program for the new employees of an organisation or employees new to the position within the firm and they have to quickly improve their productivity. It's also a common form of training within the business. So most induction programmes provide the workers with some history of the organisation, a bit of an overview of company policies, that might be down to equal opportunity, occupational health and safety, codes of conduct, business culture and the expectations. Employees are notified about leave arrangements, starting and finishing times, dress codes, union membership and how grievances are handled. Performance management. The communication process includes the following aspects. The clarification of expectations, the setting of employee workplace objectives, providing feedback and evaluating employee performance. So the benefits of performance management are that the employee has an improved understanding of how their role contributes to the goals and success of the business, the employee has a clear understanding of what needs to be done, and the employer can identify any problems early which assists the employee with improving their performance. Performance management cycle. There are three steps to this. The first one is planning, the second one's checking in, and the third one is assessment. So the first stage of planning, it's focused on goal setting. An expectation to develop between the employer and the employee regarding what tasks should be completed and how that should be done. Then goals are established between the employer and employee. They need to be realistic and achievable. The employee also needs to know that these goals can be exceeded and they may be expressed in terms of quantity, cost, quality or employee performance. The second stage of checking in means that an employer should regularly observe an employee's performance to provide feedback. Management have a key responsibility to recognise and reward strong achievement and also to encourage improvement where it's required. Following this, communications develop between the management and the employees and employee motivation tends to increase through recognition and rewards. The employee is then assisted to achieve the performance objectives. The third stage is assessment. This is the final stage of the performance management cycle. And it's the process of measuring the employee's performance against the objectives in the planning stage. Employee accomplishments, their view on the current position, areas of improvement and suggested changes are all discussed. And the results are examined against business and industry benchmarks. There's also possible reasons for the achievement of these goals or non-achievement. And then leading from that, new goals are developed with changes to be implemented. Rewards. 
Employees are often rewarded for their efforts through financial payments. Businesses recognise that employee performance is also improved by providing employees with non-financial rewards. Many businesses use a combination of financial and non-financial rewards. It's important to note that some benefits that employees receive from their employer are actually part of their legal entitlements. These benefits are the superannuation contribution, sick and annual leave provisions and holiday loading. Financial. So financial rewards are the most common types of rewards used in the workforce. These are additional monetary payments that are given to employees and are beyond the employee's minimal legal entitlements. Non-financial. Not all employees would be motivated to put greater effort into their work in return for increased financial rewards. Some employees are motivated by other benefits associated with the job or working for the company. Non-financial rewards can be fringe benefits, status-related benefits and intrinsic rewards. Individual or group. So across many businesses in Australia, employees are placed by managers in work teams. These teams share similar goals and descriptions and rewarding performance based on group achievement has a number of benefits. So it encourages a greater sense of teamwork. Employees can become more motivated. It improves communication between staff. But the problems may be that not all employees may apply equal effort in the work process. Employees may have different personal goals that don't become recognised in a team. Conflict might also occur, just like in any group activity you might have in school. Benefits of performance pay. So the benefits of performance pay include that financial rewards are often a key motivator. The performance may improve as employees are encouraged to work more effectively. Secondly, good employees are attracted to work for the organisation as they may regard performance pay as a measure of their successful work attributes. Thirdly, it encourages unmotivated and inefficient individuals to improve their performance. Some of the disadvantages of performance pay, though, are that there are many occupations in which the performance is influenced by external factors, so attitudes of consumers, health and cultural concerns, economic conditions could be hard to measure. Also, the possibility of conflict may emerge due to the process of measuring performance. So the concept of performance pay assumes that individuals are motivated by money, Some employees aren't motivated by money and they simply simply seek non-financial rewards as their form of recognition. Global, including costs, skills, supply. More companies are entering international markets by exporting their products overseas, building production facilities in other countries and making use of foreign labour. So an access to a cheaper workforce that possesses the required skills will be a key consideration. So we've talked about before, Australian businesses can redirect phone inquiries to a call centre in India. The calls will be answered in English by well-educated Indian employees who are paid less than their Australian equivalents. The ability of labour to learn new skills depend on the country's education system. Some governments put a lot of money into education to create a highly skilled but cheap workforce, and this is what attracts foreign direct investment. So India is a perfect example of this, where university graduates provide a valuable source of less expensive labour. Workplace disputes. Dispute resolution. When a dispute first emerges, all stakeholders must be notified. Employees must be informed that their work practices are inappropriate or don't consist with the expectations of the business. The employer will also be informed that staff are concerned about operational issues. Some managers may be hostile to employees being reluctant to acknowledge the concerns of their staff. So the process of resolving an industrial dispute is outlined in the grievance policy procedure of every organisation. A grievance is a dispute between the parties. 
and many businesses have developed a grievance procedure policy which outlines the process of resolving grievances in the workplace. So this specifies the grievance procedures, which are the rules and policies that employees, unions and employees must follow. Developing a grievance procedure policy for use in the employment relationship has a number of benefits. So the policy provides a clear outline of workplace grievances. It has the correct and appropriate processes to use when making a complaint. It provides a mechanism that can be used to achieve a quick resolution of disputes or arguments. So when an argument or a dispute emerges, employees may feel the need to notify their union rep. Unions inform the employees of their rights and obligations in relation to the dispute, in similar to a lawyer might do in a case. The union will offer assistance to employees in meeting with management to seek a resolution. Negotiation. So this involves a discussion between both parties in an attempt to resolve the dispute. Collective bargaining is the term used to describe negotiations over workplace disputes within an organisation. So depending on what the dispute is and the ability of the managers to deal with this grievance, an employer association could also be called to help. A small to medium business with a small or no human resource department can also seek assistance from its employer association. Mediation. As it's often the employer and the employee who are actually having the dispute, they may find it confronting to work with each other when they're attempting to reach a settlement. In some cases, a third party with no ties to either stakeholder may be brought in to assist the conflicting stakeholders. This party may suggest ideas or present issues in an alternative way. This process of resolution is known as mediation. Conciliation. Should the party still not to be able to reach a settlement through negotiation or mediation, the Fair Work Commission will be notified and requested to assist with a resolution. The Fair Work Commission's role is to assist the stakeholders in reaching an agreement where all parties are satisfied with the outcome. It adopts a very similar approach to mediation. However, the conciliator will be from the Fair Work Commission itself. And when the Fair Work Commission requests that both parties attend conciliatory meetings, each party has a legal observation to do so. Arbitration. So arbitration is the final stage of the dispute resolution process. When a dispute reaches arbitration, it is clear that the parties have not been able to reach an agreement and that some degree of hostility still exists. During the process of arbitration, lawyers representing the disputing parties will present their case to the Fair Work Commission. This organisation will evaluate the arguments presented and reach a final decision. This decision is legally binding on all parties. 